Now, here's Evan and Christie and young people. It's a very warm night, but I can assure you it's hotter than the coast of the Dallas. Especially if anybody moves in the name of the soul. And we must go to the coast of the Dallas, Evan and Christie and young people, in the midst of 400 men. And it wasn't long, as a matter of fact, in the very next incident that is reported with David Clark, that he had 600 men. And this was some indication of the growing power of David even though he was in exile, and also the weakening of Saul's kingdom. And this pattern was going to continue, brothers and sisters, and young people, until Saul fell upon the mountains of Gilboa, and David was brought to the throne. And although, of course, this pattern was to continue, in all these trials and tribulations, it didn't appear to David, not all the time at least, it didn't appear to him that such was the case. And look what he was saying in his life when he was spared of ever continuing. And a moment of weakness had almost given up the cause. But at a moment, he was in the hole of a devil. The whole of the balance, brothers and sisters, and young people, they are here in the regions of the Shephila, the lowlands of the hills. You have the Judean hills down at the center of the land. You have the Shephila, a word which means the lowlands. The hills dropping to about a thousand to five hundred feet above sea level, and then spinning out onto the plain and running up to the shore of the Mediterranean. And David was at the cave of the balance in the hills of the Shephila. And God didn't like that. The general that God didn't like that, brothers and sisters and young people, why didn't he like it? Because it was too easy for David, in moments of trial and tribulation, to take the easy road down to the land of the Philistines. And you know, it's a remarkable fact, a geographical fact, that up in the hills of Judea, which are something like 3,000 feet above sea level, you have narrow, torturous tracks leaning ever upwards to the city of the hill, Jerusalem being one of them. But as you run downhill from Judea to the plain of the Philistines, so the road broadens out and spills onto the fertile plain which the Philistines occupy. Narrow is the way that leads to the kingdom, says the Lord Jesus. But broad is the way that leads to destruction. And David was too dangerously close, when he did this, to the broad way of destruction. And God didn't like that. And in the first of Samuel, chapter 22, David had to move. In the first of Samuel, chapter 22, verse 5, And the prophet Gad said unto David, Abide not in the hole, depart and get thee into the land of Judah. Then David departed and came into the forest of Herod. He departed with the word of God and he came into the forest of Herod, which was something like six miles south, southeast of Adullam, and he moved slowly towards the hills of Judah. Now it's interesting, brothers and sisters, the young people that pause at this stage and wonder why that God, the king seer, as he was called in three other places in the record, caused God to instruct David by the word of Yahweh to move into the hills of Judah. According to the flesh, that was foolish advice. Because what God was doing was instructing him to go right into the shadow of death. 
And David was much safer, humanly speaking, in the cave of Adullam, where he not only had better shelter, but if necessary, he could escape quickly down the Sephira and lose himself into the land of the enemy, which he did, ultimately. But God was not well pleased with that. But at the moment, God, David's fear, instructs him to go into the hills of Judah. And do you think that we are imagining that this was difficult? That God was instructing him to go there because, humanly speaking, the defenses were better? Well, they're not. Because in the next chapter, in the 23rd chapter of the first of Samuel, the 600 men who David now had with him, say in verse 3, and David's men said unto him, Behold, we be afraid here in Judah. Of course they were, because they were right under the shadow of Saul. Not only so, but look at this. Saul, at this moment of time, north of Jerusalem, at a place called Gibeah. Where Saul was, the hills are higher and closer together, and protection was easier. But as the Judean hills fall away in the Negev, the Yama Desert areas, Saving the area around Hebron and more so around the Aegean Sea, but opens right out, the hills straddling out upon this plateau, and a very open country except for a few places nearest to the Dead Sea. So that David was carefully told by Dad to get out of the ocean, and his 400, 600 men said, Oh, look, we don't like this. This is no good. And brethren and sisters, the young people, there is a principle here. And David had to recognize it. So he did recognize it. He recognized it for a while. He put up with it for a while. But he ultimately gave in and left that place and ran into all sorts of trouble. Now what then was the principle involved in the information with Jack David? Jack, by the way, was a very faithful man. He appears in the record, not very much, but he is there always. And every time his name comes up, he figures very prominently in advice that he gives David. And it's always good advice. On one occasion, it was a heavy rebuke. But nonetheless, sound advice. He was a man to be trusted. And even though at this day, his words didn't seem to have power in it, there was a principle involved. And what was the principle? Look, as long as David was in this area, at Zir, at Kila, at Maran, at Enzedi, at Hakala, at Jechemon. As long as he stayed in that high school circle, all the time he was there was a matter of cat and mouth, hide and seek, escaping by the skin of his feet. As time and again, Saul would cut him off this way, he'd veer away from him. Saul would come around the other way, he'd veer away from him again. And it was cat and mouth, hide and seek, all the time in that area. And David had a moment's rest in the hills of Judea. But the important thing, brother and sister, is that he did it today. And that's all that mattered. And there was a wonderful object lesson for David. Here was an area which was within the compass of the land, due to which belonged more particularly to David, the inheritance of Yahweh, as he called it. And yet whilst he was in that atmosphere, confined geographically within a very tight circle, he was escaping by the skin of his feet, but escaping he was. And that's the principle that God wanted him to see. Behold, we'll be afraid here in Judah, said the 400 men. I had no need to be afraid so long as they took their trust in God. And in the wilderness of Judah where they were, that's all they could do to put their trust in God. And what's the principle for us? Here it is. 
Spirit, the Word of the Spirit, and the Ecclesia. And what is your experience of the Ecclesia of God, brothers and sisters? It is an easy existence for the one in the church. But if they're in the truth, a member of the Commonwealth of Israel, and a brother of the Lord Jesus Christ, you find it difficult. Very difficult. And it's a matter of narrow faith in the equation of God. Tribulation, trouble, anguish, problems, hinder sin, crowd of sin. Bring us to the very edge of murder, destruction. And if we had our way, we would set up our hold of Ed's rock. And Ed's rock, I would set up my hold, but it's no good. And within the confines of this territory, we move. You might say, well, this is the state of slave. We have here the companionship of our brethren and sisters, and thank God as we do. David has his companionship too. But with that companionship comes problems. All of us have got a lot of fear. There's nothing else but a bundle of propensity. And in our dealings one with each other, very often we lose sight of the great things of the truth. And a crazy life at times, brethren and sisters, can be very, very trying indeed. But God says, through prophets like Gad, get into the land of Judah and stay there. And escape we will. So ultimately we will, we will, we will be drawn to the kingdom of God as David was. And Saul can no longer touch him. But that was the principle that he was alert. Now then, here's David, moving around this area here, in a very tight circle. Sometimes coming back to the very place that he left. And we're going to see later on, but he became so familiar with his territory that he could do, he could do more things later than he wouldn't do normally. First of all, he finds it difficult in this area. But as he became a debt and became familiar with the terrain, he was able to almost do what the saw, what Saul was doing to him. And if David had seen that pattern, he would have stayed in the wilderness of Judah. But he despaired by all human people do, he despaired and he left it. But you see, brothers and sisters, not only did God invite him, into this situation. But he put him there, not merely to be protected by divine providence and to learn this lesson, but he was told to help his brothers and sisters, to love his enemies, to do good when he was done evil to. Not to render evil for evil, but good. And while he was in the wilderness of Judea, he exercised tremendous influence over the people in that area. And although at the moment they didn't appreciate that, and showed very base gratitude. Ultimately, the things which David had done in this area were the very things that introduced him to the throne. Because it was into this area that he came, where he was readily accepted by the people, who remembered at last the goodness that he brought to them in this particular area. You know, brothers and sisters, he's a fugitive. A fugitive from Saul, hated and hunted by his brethren. And what was he doing? He was a wildfire around the ecclesia, protecting it from his enemies. And whilst he's slipping away from Saul and running, yet in effect he's the greatest defense that Israel's got. And we see it coming out of the circle so powerfully how that God directed him into this way. And how can we do the same? Very often we malign and criticize. Never mind about it. Two God doesn't insist it. And show the attributes of a true shepherd. But even when the sheep cannot appreciate the work of the truth which is done on their behalf, never mind. Remember this, that this is the avenue of, of work, and there we faithfully as long as we've given that task to do. And David had a very bitter effort. 
of faith and gratitude that he went and delivered the city of Keilah. The city of Keilah. And in the first of Samuel 23, we found out what was happening here. Verse 1. Then they told David, saying, Behold, the Philistines fight against Keilah, and they robbed the threshing floor. And so it was springtime, and they were in the process of threshing. And the men of Keilah, of course, getting out in the open and, and threshing their, their grain, and the Philistines, the opportunists, Waiting the opportunity, yes, it's harvest time in Israel, free feed, waiting for the people to press their, their grain and in those fruits and take the boundaries. And this is what they were suffering in the wilderness of Judah until David came. And now then he thinks to himself, he'll inquire of Yahweh, shall I go and smite these Philistines? I wonder what we would have said, brothers and sisters, young people. Serve them right. Serve them right. There's a judgment of God upon the guilty. The year was coming for years. Not David. He was different than you and I. He was a man after God's own heart. I wonder whether I ought to go and smite the Philistines. That was the only doubt that he had, whether he could go and smite the Philistines. It was never ended into his mind that he could let the men of Peter suffer. And he cried of Yahweh. And the answer was, yes, so say Peter. And then the 400 come to him and said, listen, what are you doing? This is crazy. This is absolutely mad. We think by that out in the open. Why, I don't know. The cave of the dollar was excellent. We could have fled down the place to the land of the Philistines and dispersed them with the field and never found it. Now we're out in the open. And you, you want to go up to Peter. Oh, this is mad. And you know, brothers and sisters, those four forward is mad. But the record says that David inquired of Yahweh yet again. You see, he wanted the man to press his opinions above others, even when he knew he was right. He had already had an answer of Yahweh. There is a 600 angry men before him. But he doesn't fight them and say, listen, I've been told this, you're going to mind your own business. He goes back to Yahweh on Bertie Park and inquires again. And he told the same thing. Go to the men of Peter. And so David prepares to go. And just as he's preparing to go, and he's getting to the city of Tegar, a man comes running into the camp. So the piece of material waving in the breeze. He raises into the camp with a piece of material waving in the breeze. It came to pass when Abiathar, the son of Ahimelech, fled to David to Tegar, that he came down with an ephod in his hand. And there running into the camp of David, brothers and sisters, was the sanctuary. For he had the ephod in his hand. David had already inquired of Yahweh by what methods and did not know. But as if Yahweh was going to bolster David's confidence and courage at this state, having had heavy pressure from 600 men, having to ask twice about this matter, running into the camp comes Abiathar, the only one who escaped from the slaughter of Jared of the priest. He was the son of Ahimelech, the priest of Israel. And in his hand, waving in the knees was the ephod. What a tremendous thrill that would have been to David. For in that little cloth, little piece of cloth, there it was, waving it with the colors of the veil. And it was meant, brethren and sisters, to represent on the breast of the high priest the whole tabernacle. But in miniature, there was a tabernacle walking around Israel, a mountain with David. 
And this is the pattern of things. And coming out of Saul, the life blood of the nation, flowing out of that dead body, but bringing life to David. And up they went to the men of Peter. And now David inquires again and again, again, through the epoch. And he had an excellent, an excellent communication with Yahweh. As the ephod was now with him, and in verse 9 he says, And David knew that Saul secretly practiced mischief against him. And he said to Abiah the priest, Bring hither the ephod. In verse 12, he said, David, the women of Peter, deliver me and my men to the hand of Saul. And Yahweh said, I will. I will. That's exactly the position of flesh. Third element this is, is the confidence which is a place in man. He's a bond of life. He's out there threatening his weight. There's four or six hundred men prepared to come right out in the open to protect him. They're all being hunted like fleas, as David himself says. They're already risking their life. They get out of the open and they go into the city of, Ze- of Tila. And having one of all the six hundred to get in there, and Yahweh said, they'll shut you up, as the word deliver me. They'll shut the gate. And all of the men of Tila were waiting for, while they saw the Philistines put the flight, their corn fed back to them, they were waiting for all the men to be inside the city, and at a given signal, they'd have shut it up in the city, and brought Saul down. There's a lesson of faith in gratitude. And that would have hurt David, brothers and sisters, because a much lesser man than himself got far more respect and grateful thanks than he did for a similar action. When Saul first came to the throne, Nahash the Ammonite, a man who came in for service, encompassed the city of Jabesh Gilead. And Saul gathered all Israel together. He shone out brilliantly at this time, marched across the river Jordan and up the plain. And he delivered the men of Jabesh Gilead. And they never forgot it. And when the kingdom was weakened, when Saul's insanity had drifted, and David sent a message to them to come to him, they remained never the soul of the day of their death. They went the best care and got his body off the wall of the city. They got the bones of his, his bodies of his son, burnt them and buried their bones, and revered the place where they were buried. A lesser man than David got the gratitude of those people, and he was the men of Tila, waiting for the morning to get inside the city to lock the gate. Now there's a lesson of faith in gratitude. But God wasn't concerned with the action of the men of Tila. He was watching steadily the reaction of a man called David. And this, brethren and sisters and young people, is something we want to keep in mind. David hadn't completely learned that lesson. He was going to be taught it, and we're going to learn about that tonight. And he was taught it magnificently by a woman. God wasn't concerned with the action of the men of Tila. They could handle that situation. The one that God dies with upon, brethren, was the Nebuchadnezzar was David. How did he react to that? And that's where we and I come into this picture. Never mind about the boasting of attitude that's very often shown to us. Never mind about that. Never mind about the people who practice that. Watch what you do in your turn. David departs. Look at the custom. 
Those 600 men could have tore that city apart brick by brick and scattered them in a field up and banned the Beersheba. Men like Joab and Abishai, Asahel, and a few others. They were quite boys, believe me. They could have crushed that city at a moment's notice. But they left the flock. The 600 men arose and departed out of of Tila, and they went forth. And they went into the region of Drift, which was about seven miles below Hebron, a little to the southeast of Tila. And in the region of Drift they went, a word that means free flowing. And they came into the region of Drift, expecting, I suppose, that perhaps they would find people a little more friendly. Verse 19. Then came up the Zippites to Saul the Gideon, saying, Does not David hide himself with us in strongholds, in the woods, in the hill of Hakalah, which is on the south of Jeshimon? Here was a betrayal, brothers and sisters, that was calculated to bring David into Saul's grip. They were prepared to sit up and say, Listen, David's hiding with us. They gave absolutely detailed instructions as to where to find him. They worked it all out. He's with us in the strongholds in the world in the hill of Hagalah on the south side of Jezebel. We know where he is. Men of Judah were saying this. And if they come, brethren, this woman I'm talking about, Abigail, I'm going to show you an attitude of mind that runs just opposite to that. And she was following David step by step by step all the time. She knew. She knew all that he was doing. Give you all the circumstances of his life. And what's more, what's more, we will see in a moment, she knew how David was reacting to those circumstances. And she was anxious that David's reaction might sometimes get out of control. A woman was doing that. And she was married to one of the greatest rockers that ever lived. But here's the Zippite watching you. Him from his position and going up the stall with this impediment. And in the 54th Psalm, David records his reaction to that. This is thrilling, wouldn't it? Psalm 54 is written on the occasion when the Zippites betrayed him. Save me, O God, by thy name, and judge me by thy strength. Hear my prayer, O God, give ear to the words of my mouth. For strangers are risen up against me, and oppressors seek after my soul. They have not set God before them. Behold, God is mine, helper, and Yahweh is with them that uphold my soul. He shall reward evil under mine enemies, cut them off in thy truth. I will freely sacrifice unto thee. I will praise thy name, O Yahweh, for it is good. For he has delivered me out of all trouble, and mine eye has seen his desire upon mine enemies. What a wonderful attitude of mind, brethren and sisters. I will freely sacrifice unto Yahweh. I will praise Yahweh for he is good. What for? He just be betrayed by half the meeting. They've gone up and pinpointed his position. They've watched him like a hawk. And he says, I will praise thee for your good to me. This was his attitude of mind. God was good to him. Because they never caught him. And he knew that God had in his mind a disciple. The time would come and they would get their, 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 their just reward. But that didn't matter. All David had to do was to praise Yahweh for his goodness in delivering him from those sort of people. And that was an attitude of mind that he always adopted. And coming back to 1 Samuel 23, 
I want you to notice Saul's reaction to the message of a zip-off. Remember how Saul is slipping, brethren and sisters? Right now he's slipping into abject selfishness. Now have a look at the selfish out of a bit. Verse 21. Blessed be ye of Yahweh, for ye have compassion on me. Good gracious me. Have you ever heard the last? Here's David voicing his opinion in the psalm. I will praise Yahweh for his goodness. And Saul up here saying, Blessed be ye of Yahweh, for ye have compassion on me. Have you ever heard? And he goes on and says, Go now, I pray you, prepare and get and know and see his place where his horse is. They've given him fairly good direction. Goodness me. He was with them in the strongholds in the wood. He was by the hill of Hakalah, which is just south of the wilderness of Jezimon. The brave God opens up with a bit of flattery and says, Now look, what I would like, of course, is for you to actually get him trapped in. And then I'll give you my word, he says, I will search him out. Search him out. Now look at the attitude of mind of that man. Now you take it, brethren and sisters. Why couldn't the Zippites see that? See him sitting out there at Gibeah, self-satisfied. But he's got David on the run. It's only a matter of time before I can blow him out. Talking about compassion on him. Compassion! Compassion! What does he know about compassion? And talking about going, let them go and do the burning work. Get him boxed right up. And I'll give you my word. I will search him out for all the thousands of Judah. Well, wasn't that a brave speech? And the Zippites couldn't see through that. They couldn't see through that, brothers and sisters, and down they came to do exactly what Saul had said. But they didn't find him. They didn't find him. And thank God they didn't find him. And so as they came down then to search for David, he once again escaped out of their hands. And we read in verse 23, Saul also on his hand went to seek him. And they told David, Wherefore he came down into a rock, and abode in the wilderness of my arm. And when Saul heard that, he pursued David in the wilderness of my arm. So that David once again slips out of the clutches of Saul, and he goes down to the wilderness of my arm. You know, brothers and sisters, it's remarkable, before he went down to the wilderness of my arm, when the Zippites had gone up to tell Saul where he was, to give him the exact position where he was, and before he moved away from that position, as Saul and his men came down to find him, Saul sent the Zippites ahead of him to pinpoint his position, that he might know where he was, so that he could trap him. But there was a man in Saul's kingdom who knew exactly where David was, and he went down there and beat his father to it. And that man was Jonathan. And in this extremity of his position, when he was betrayed by strangers, of in Psalm 54, betrayed by strangers and strangers they were today, but they were his brethren, they were Israelites, they were strangers, even the woodsman did come striding this wonderful, open-hearted, big, enormous man, Jonathan, a lovely fellow, brethren and sisters, and this is where the, the word of God just simply bubbles over, I believe, with great encouragement to those who walk in the way of truth, and he's found difficulty. And we've got all around us lovely people, and thank God that we have. 
People who see an ideal for the ideal's sake and who prepared to seek self. People who are not, don't love you on the basis of personality or anything else. They love you for the true sake. And into the woods of, of this same Jonathan, he said, look, don't worry about that. He'll never find you. He'll never find you, David. I've got confidence he'll never find you. And you're going to be king, and I'm going to be next to you. And they embraced Kiss in that world. And Jonathan left him. Never saw him again. Brave Jonathan. Loyal Jonathan. Loyal to his father. And the other brothers and sisters, I feel it's a tremendous contrast that David had with him 600 men who came out of that kingdom because of a bitterest soul against Saul. And yet David never had amongst those men, nor collectively did he have the loyalty that Jonathan gave him who stayed with him. And David knew that. That's loyalty, brothers and sisters. Loyalty to the truth. How do we react? 600 people around our footstool, searching forth their rage against our enemies, exalting us to encourage us to go forth and to slay the enemies of Saul, and perhaps speaking in whispers about Jonathan who didn't have the stomach to come out and stand for his conviction. But David dismissed all that. As far as David was concerned, brothers and sisters, the most loyal man of all was back in the camp of Saul and it was Jonathan. He knew where David was. Found him quickly. And strengthened his hand in God. So when David slipped away from that area, he went, I believe, greatly strengthened the things of God. Not, um, not realizing that he would never see that wonderful character again. Never see him again until the kingdom age, when that love between the two of them would be renewed. And God will go on into all eternity. And so into the wilderness of Mayon they came. The word Mayon means habitation. And it was one of those regions, but I'm not wrong here, where there was a, a maze of hills and valleys all tossed together in wild confusion. It was a very small region, but it was an excellent region, brethren and sisters, for hiding. But it also had its danger. Because it was so wild and intertangled, the valleys and the hills, but whilst it was easy to hide, it was also easy, very inadvertently, to run into someone coming around the next corner. And when they were hunting each other in this region, David was in constant danger, so that any turn of the road, he could be face to face with Saul. And Saul came down with 3,000 men. He had 3,000 in his standing army. 3,000 he had in his standing army. He had that much more, many more men in his army, but he had 3,000 that he kept at the ready at all times. And he moved a whole lot of them in that region. And there's 3,000 fellows walking around that area. And there's 600 of David. So there's 3,600 men jogging and twisting in this very, very confined area, which was a maze of hills and valleys. And David was in desperate plight in the wilderness of Mayan. Until finally, in this jigsaw puzzle, in this maze, it so happened in verse 26 that Saul went on this side of the mountain, and David and his men on that side of the mountain, and David made haste to get away for fear of Saul. For Saul and his men compassed David, and his men round about to take them. And so it came, brothers and sisters, that they came either side of the mountain. 
and we try to get away, so it covers out his body. He got him at last, stocked up in the wilderness of Marah. Only a matter of time now, it's all over. And David knew that. And all of a sudden, somebody comes right through the curve and says, The Philistines! The Philistines! Really, the Philistines! Look, the Philistines in Judah! So Saul goes, I have to look after Philistine. And David left in the room with the man on his own. And he told us like, Selah Hamalachon. Verse 28. Selah Hamalachon. The rock of division. Or as it's more correctly understood from the Hebrews. The rock of slipping away. And they told the rock of Slipping away, and there, brothers and sisters, he slipped away out of the hand of Saul. And in the 31st Psalm, these words could well have been written on the basis of experiences like that. Look in Psalm 31. Reading from verses 1 to 5. In Psalm 31, verses 1 to 5. In thee, O Yahweh, you have put my staff. Let me never be ashamed. Deliver me in thy righteousness. Bow down thine ear to me. Deliver me speedily. Be thou my strong rock, for an house of defense to save me. For thou art my rock and my fortress. Therefore, for thy name's sake, lead me and guide me. Pull me out of the net that they have laid privily for me, for thou art my strength. Into thine hand I commit my spirit. Thou hast redeemed me, O Yahweh, Isle of Truth. Look at those words, brothers and sisters. For thou art my rock, my fortress, and he was at the rock of my arm, the habitation. And there was the habitation of justice, the mighty God of Israel. And upon that rock he was when the men had come to see him about. And what did he say? Into thine hand I commend my spirit. There was another man caught, brothers and sisters, caught, he could never get out of the trap. And he was on a cross, or on a stake. And that caught him, and they were all around him. He had no hope of escape. And he said, with thy hand, I commend my spirit. He had no hope of escape. And Hebrews says that God saved him out of death. And that's exactly what God did to David. And Saul never came as close as that before or after. It was the closest shade of David's life. And God took him right out of it. And he penned those words, Into thy hands I commend my spirit. What else could he do? What else could he do? Far as he was concerned, he was gone. And there the Lord Jesus Christ, the greatest son of David, surrounded by his enemies, impaled upon the stake, no hope of escape. What could he do? What could he do? Nothing else but what the psalmist said. Well, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And what a God did. He drew him out of death. And that, brothers and sisters, I believe, is a psalm that could well have been written on an occasion such as that. What a wonderful thing then, in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ, that he should meditate like we're doing upon the life of David and seeing the same things that came upon him. You know, in the 63rd psalm, while we're in the psalm, another psalm was written at this time. This is in Psalm 63. In 
in the 63rd Psalm, in verses 1 and 2, we read, for example, on the top of the Psalm, that it was when David was in the wilderness of Judah. And he says, O God, thou art my God, early will I seek thee, my soul thirsteth for thee, my flesh longeth for thee in a dry and thirsty land where no water is. To see thy power and thy glory, so as I have seen thee in thy sanctuary. Then in verses 6 and 7, when I remember thee upon my bed and meditate upon thee on the, in the night watches, because thou hast seen my help, therefore in the shadow of thy wings will I rejoice. You know, brethren and sisters, when you read things like that, you want to get hold of that psalm and grip the spirit of it. You want to read that when he was in the wilderness of Judah, and there he was in a dry, parched land. And you can imagine him on the night watches, from the elemental sleep, and the stillness of the Judean night. It was spring because the threshing floors were being robbed. And in the season of the Passover, when all Israel were abiding under the shadow of divine protection, or they should have been, remembering the great deliverance of Egypt, there was a lonely man in a dry and thirsty land, and his heart was just going out of him towards the city of Jerusalem. And whilst those 600 slept, he was meditating in his night watches, Preaching elements, this is the wonders of the power of God that are manifest in that land. You can't appreciate his feelings on those occasions in such circumstances. And yet those are the feelings that was engendered in this wonderful man of God. Praise God that we shall emulate him in all our tribulations and in all the circumstances of our lives. And you know, there's no greater force in our lives than when troubles crowd upon you, when problems have been heaped upon you, is to stand on your toes and look at the city of Jerusalem over the top of it all. And to see it, brethren and sisters, as the city of God, the habitation of justice, the rock of salvation. And to put our trust in God, that ultimately we'll be taken right out of the troubles and delivered into that city. And David forever looked towards that city. And there he was, driven all around it, never could get down to the worship of God. Of course it wasn't at Jerusalem at this time. The tabernacle wasn't there. But nonetheless, he was nowhere near the brethren and sisters, away from the courts of, of, of Yahweh. And yet, in effect, he had more worship. It was clear to the 600 that Saul had this present moment of time. And it was going to go more and more that way. But for the moment, he's on the run. First of Samuel 24. And on the run he continued. Well, first of Samuel 23, the last verse says, And David went up from thence and dwelt in the strongholds of En Aion Jedi, the spring of the wild goat, right on the shores of the Dead Sea, brothers and sisters. And David was driven further and further eastward. But he came right over the shores of the Dead Sea. And there the wilderness of Judea, as it draws near the great Arabah, the Jordan Valley, it drops steeply down to about 400 feet, almost straight down to the valley floor, which runs into the Dead Sea. And in that steep descent of 400 feet, it's cleft by these defiles and roll run down to the valley of the Jordan. And you saw that. And the one of them better is about a mile long as it spills out into the valley and broadens out. And because there's a spring there, you've got remarkable fertility. It's unbelievable when you see it. The greenery of the Red Jedi. And you can stand at the top of the Red Jedi and look down that defile which plunges down from you and runs out of the floor into the Red Sea. You can look down that and you see the Red Sea. You see the blue hills of Moab, you see the salt plains, you see desolation, you see sterile country all around you, and you just see a green flash as it runs down from the ghetto. 
And there is the place of the wild gate. The rock and the fire. The mini cavern. The place of the wild gate. And into that area with David. And verse 3 says, And he came with a sheep coat by the rock. That's interesting. He came with a sheep coat. He came with a place where the shepherds used to keep their sheep. And of course, there were no various references, they used to have these caves, and they would build a wall, a circular wall outside the cave with a doorway, and they would drive their sheep through that wall and into the cave. And it was almost a natural sheep cave. And in one of those sheep caves, David drove his little flock. Of course, some of them were speaking his wolves and sheep David. They spoke like a lamb, but they were dragons. But nonetheless, into that cavern, into one of those sheep caves, David drove his little flock of 600 men. And Saul was hunting him. And Saul, because the, 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 the locality is excellent for rest, it's a wonderful spot. You can't believe it that you go up to the top of the bed on, you come to where the stream comes out of the, out of the, right out of the hill and spills to about 20 or 30 feet into a pool, splashing up and bubbling there. And of course, you've got the overhanging cliff and the verge there, so it cast a deep shade all around you. And you can't imagine the refreshing atmosphere of that place as you go there. And one can never really imagine that as Saul is the first his army through to the forest to search for David, he feels that he himself, having passed his way, being quite certain that David is not here, that he can for a moment go aside and rest a while. And into the cave comes the enemy of God. And the enemy of those six hundred men. And those 600 men of God said before, they could have smashed into Paul's presence just as in a ten-second flat. And the opportunity is here. And they appealed to David. Now you look at this in verse 4. Look at the appeal they make to David. And the men of David said unto him, Behold the day of which Yahweh said unto thee, Behold, I will deliver thine enemy into thine hand, that thou mayest do to him as it shall be good unto thee. And they appealed to David on the basis of the word of God. On the basis of the word. As you can imagine, have a show of, show of either side of it. This is it. This is the scripture. This is the day. Look, Yahweh has been talking about this. Go on, go on, go on. And there were six hundred of them that were bigger than Saul. Men in debt, men that have been depressed, men that were in distress. They hated him. And with a hatred that was an inveterate hatred, and David wrote about that in the 57th Psalm. And I say this it's a standing testament to the immense character of David and to his personal influence upon those men that verse 7 said he saved them with words. Can you imagine saying Jared with words? We're going to see him later on. I'm going to run a little character sketch of Jared. It'll make your blood run cold. You never saw him as a bloodthirsty man in all your life. And they're a lot like him. And he saved them with words. And there's a testimony of a man carrying the brothers and sisters. And I'm a lot of Julia Nathan saw him sitting at the, at the cave cabin door, coming in out of the, out of the light into the darkness of the cave. And the men were there becoming accustomed to the light to the darkness and seeing better than him. And Saul sitting right there and all straining at the leaf. 
and there would have been Dixon Square all over the Dead Sea area. And Sergeant says, Leave him alone. Leave him alone. No one moved. No one moved. Except Sergeant. And he was able, brothers and sisters, by the power of what he was, to command the respect and obedience of men who were fierce in the animosity of the We could be lost. He can command respect, the admiration and obedience of others, if they feel that we are worthy of it. No one's going to listen to the hypocrite. And if David had been a hypocrite, he would have got killed with stampede. Nobody knew. He went out, and you know the story of the Bible. Cut off his skirt, allowed him to leave the cave, saw unknowing as to what had happened. And then David followed him out. And called to him. And you know, brothers and sisters, in the words of David, you saw, there was a passion of tears to send it. And you know, it's rather remarkable the way that David addressed it. He said in verse 8, My Adam the king, my Lord the king. At the end of verse 10, he called him Yahweh's anointed. At the beginning of verse 11, my father. Verse 14, the king of Israel. Look at the appeal. As he walks out behind Saul, draws his attention, Saul swings around. My Lord, the King, Yahweh's anointed. My Father, the King of Israel. And all that was driving Saul on his mad course, brothers and sisters, was his fear that David would occupy every one of those positions. That David would be the Lord of the King. That he would be Yahweh's anointed. That he would be the father of Israel, that he would be the king of Israel, and then poor David telling Saul, I don't want it, Saul. I'm prepared to recognize your right. Sure, it's better name than I am, Saul, as far as that's concerned, you've been anointed by Yahweh. I don't. My Lord, the king, Yahweh's anointed. My father, the king. And all that was driving Saul on his mad course, brothers and sisters, was his fear that David would occupy every one of those positions. That David would be the Lord of the King. That he would be Yahweh's anointed. That he would be the father of Israel. That he would be the king of Israel. And then poor David telling Saul, I don't want it, Saul. I'm prepared to recognize your right. Sure, it's better name than I am, Saul, as far as that's concerned, you've been anointed by Yahweh. I don't want it. And he appealed to him on this basis. And he says, what are you doing? After whom do you pursue? A dead God? And a dead God was the most contemptible thing because it was not only useless, but it was an abomination. Am I an abomination to you, my father? Do you come out after a flea, and the Hebrew word is a single flea? Have I one flea in the whole nation that I've got to be exterminated? What is it that drives you on this mad course 
when I don't want the things that you feel I do. But now, Saul continued on that course of learning decisions despite that appeal. But for the moment, somebody returned to him. And from verse 16 onwards, we had a reply of Saul, in which family for a moment returned to him. And he says, Is this not thy voice, my son David? And he goes on to show that he was more righteous. David was more righteous than him. And Saul, for the moment, brothers and sisters, by the very example that he was showing, was forced to admit that a better man was before him. And then Saul revealed his mind in verse 19. If a man find his enemy, will he let him go well away? You can imagine what that meant. If the tables had been reversed, brethren and sisters, what do you think Saul would have done? If a man find his enemy, will he let him go away? The answer in Saul's mind was decidedly not. And he was telling David in no uncertain words, although unconsciously what he would do, and now he says in verse 20, Behold, I know well that thou shalt surely be king, and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in thine hand. Well, if he knew that, why did he a silly idiot bow that conviction? And you know, brethren and sisters, we say that we can't understand the attitude of mind. But look, I'm going to show you that Saul wasn't the only one who knew that. All Israel knew that. I know well that the kingdom will be established in thine hands. Why didn't he bow to that conviction? For precisely the same reason, that you and I do not miss the expectations, although we know well that Christ is coming. Exactly the same reason that he was fled. Precisely the same reason why that from Sunday from Sunday we get up here and we talk about the way people dress. We talk about the marks of the flesh on their face. We talk about other things and they've got not the slightest intention of doing anything about But everybody knows that the fundamental of Christology is the fact that Christ is coming. That's the same reason. And don't you ever tell me, don't anybody ever come and tell me that they don't understand Saul's attitude of mind. Because I say this, if they don't understand Saul's attitude of mind, then they don't understand anything about the Bible or human nature. And we do things, brothers and sisters, day by day, in the face of strong conviction to the conscience. And what makes us do it? Love of self. Mr. B. Because we won't be told. And because if we did it, it would be the victories of the brother or the sister that gave us the advice. And why should they care? Who knows? Who knows who they are? And that's what Paul said. I know well that you're going to be king. But he had not the slightest intention of doing anything about it. And yet David thought perhaps he did. Because on this occasion, he walked right behind him. We're going to come to an incident in a minute, but he didn't do that. Before he told him this again, he put a valley between him and Saul, because you could see them, and he said that Saul was slipping so fast into this valley of despair and ignorance and wickedness that he had to put a valley between him and that king. Never again following up like that to David. Because David could read right through him as a hypocrite. I believe Saul in every word that he said, but he said, I know well. I believe he did know, but Jonathan said he did. He says, my father knows. He knows David's your destiny. And so did his uncle. And so did a host of others. And yet they went about in their creed just to oppose it. Why? 
because they love themselves and they refuse to bow to the will of God. And you and I do precisely the same thing. Make no mistake about that. We do precisely the same thing, brothers and sisters, and we will continue to do it so long as we continue to listen to the dictates of our fleshly wisdom. In chapter 25, Samuel died. Another man has died. Look what's happening. There's a big meeting up there in Judah. Abide has gone. All the priests of Nob have gone. All the city of Nob has gone. The 600 men with David, they're gone. The ephod's gone. And Samuel's now dead. One by one, brethren and sisters, the pillars of the truth are falling out of Israel. And what did David do? What did he do when Samuel died? All Israel gathered together to bury him at Ramah, the height. The word means the height, and he was the height of Israel, of course he was. What did David do? He went straight down the rivers of Paran. He went further and deeper south. Because he knew, brethren and sisters, that there was up at Ramah at least a little fool of a prophet with an aged man presiding over them who, who represented a bit of common sense in Israel and they were exercising a verbal strike and as soon as David heard that Samuel died he went for his life in the wilderness of Paran. Why should he? Because he knew that further restraint was lifted from Saul. And when he came down there he came to a place called Mayon and in the region of, of Carmel where there was a man who had great possessions by the name of Nabal. And Nabal means a fool. And that's exactly what he was. And in verse 4, David heard in the wilderness that Nabal did shear his sheep. Now, brethren and sisters, it was an Eastern custom that at the time of shearing, of course, they used to get a lot of help from all over the place. They would collect together a team of shearers, much as they do today, and they would all participate in the shearing of the flock. And it was a custom on these occasions to make it a great festival. We have one later on, for example, when Absalom was shearing his sheep and he called it Great Feast. And this was the custom of the day. So that everybody came along with the shearers and they had a great feast to celebrate the shearing. Nabal had great possession. David heard that he was shearing his sheep. So he decided that Nabal ought to share his bounty. Why? Well, look what David has done for them. Verse 7. And now I have heard that thou hast shearers. Now thy shepherds, which were with us, we hurt them not, neither was there aught missing unto them, all the while that they were in Carmel. Those are David's words to Nabal. Later on, the shepherds themselves confirmed that, and they said in verse 15 and 16, that the men were very good unto us. We were not hurt, neither missed we anything, as long as we were conversant with them when we were in the field. They were a wall unto us both by night and day. All the while we were with them, keeping the sheep. A wall unto us. The wilderness of Paran, brethren and sisters, the last outpost of Judah. Beyond the wilderness of Paran was all the, the regions where all the Bedouin tribes roamed. The fierce tribes of the desert. The Amalekites were down there with a host of others. The Edomites were down there. And there were a host of others who used to come screaming up into Judah and to have a, a, a place down here 
like Nabal had, and to be prosperous, that man was very, very blessed indeed. And the reason for this present prosperity was that the shepherds were unmolested, because there was a wall around them. It had some pretty solid bricks, believe me. There was a wall around those men, and they never missed a thing. And you can only take Paint the picture in your own mind of what would have went on in that wilderness as the, the sheep, the shepherds would have brought their sheep into the field and they would have seen David's men. They would have gone over there, shook hands with them, or whatever they did in those days, made friends with them, talked with them, protected them by night, shared their watches, made sure that they kept the Amalekites further and further away from them. No, not a sheep was missed while David was there. He had every right to share in that feast. And so he sent a message to David. What was his reply? Verse 10. Who is David? Who is the son of Jesus? Ha! Ha! There are many servants that break away every man from his master. A vagabond! What? A renegade! To my feast? Go and be the jump in the light. And this message came back to David. David got all the sword. He girded it on, verse 13. David said under his men, Gird ye every man on his sword, and there was steam coming out of his ears. <laughs> now, brethren and sisters, David's about to get an object lesson. For the first time, we have recorded now at this particular stage, David has an unrighteous anger. You say, oh, but look, he should have, should have been angry, he had every right to be angry. Perhaps he did. But there was something about this anger, brothers and sisters, that was very bad. And it was calculated to bring David into great harm. Now let's look at the 40th chapter of Proverbs. In the 40th chapter of Proverbs, and verse 29. Proverbs 14 verse 29 says He that is slow to wrath is of great understanding but he that is hasty of spirit exalted noble folly and David was ready to blow up a whole lot of steam. He was wild! And the 600 men with him were wild too. And now for the first time, brethren and sisters, there was true fellowship between David and his 600. He was one with them. And he shouldn't have been. And you can imagine on this occasion, when they mounted their, 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 their mules, they rode towards the, the uh, place of Nabal. They were all behind David. You imagine David and all the fellows hardly waiting to get there. And David, his eyes red, blazing with anger. That a man of such a foolish nature should reject the goodness of God that had been shown to him through the deliverance of David affected. And now into the picture comes a marvellous woman. And she was a marvellous woman, brethren and sisters, and young people. And she had a rare combination of characteristics. A rare combination of characteristics. She was pretty, 
and she was intelligent. That's a rare combination. And her intelligence is astounding. Absolutely astounding. Not only so, but this intelligence was known by everybody, at least all her own household. Now with the young men who had been protected by David, and David had about him declared he was going to destroy everybody, the innocent was the guilty. In the heat of anger, where did they go? But one of the young men went and told Abigail. Of course he did. He knew that there was a woman who would understand. And in this record of David's life comes one of the most remarkable characters. And here's a list for our sister. Thank goodness they're not good looking, but they've got better chance of being intelligent. But into this record comes a character that I think is going to be a great stimulus for young people, young sisters. They got look, here's a woman they can emulate. Now I want you to follow through this woman's character. Abigail. Her name means Father's Joy, and that's exactly what she was. She was her heavenly father's joy in every sense of the word. How on earth she became married to a man like Nabal, I will never know. There must have been a time when she didn't have intelligence. But there you are, they were married. This character, this woman, and this, and this man. And she hears about this. And she knows, brethren and sisters, that disaster threatens. But I want you to notice this. And I want this to impress upon you. If I can impress nothing else, I want to impress upon you this fact. Her greatest concern was to David. Now you marked it. Her greatest concern was not for her servant, was not for her husband, was not for herself. Her greatest concern was that David was about to act out of character. And she had known David. She had already loved him. She knew how he acted in every circumstance. She knew what he should have done. And she was greatly afraid that David was going to act out of character and it would be a thing he would regret all his life. And that was the greatest concern she had. She was intelligent. And away she went to meet him. And my word, what a wonderful occasion this was. We read at the end of verse 9 years, she told that she did not tell her husband Nathan. And it was so, as she rode on the ass, that she came down by the cover of a hill. And behold, David, as you sinned, came down against her, and she met them. What a remarkable verse of scripture. You know, that word cover means, literally means a cover. And you can get the picture, can't you? But David tops the rise of this hill on one side, and she tops the rise on the other. Now in this particular region, they could have easily missed each other. There was more than one route in this route, in this region. It was one of that region again I was talking about where there's a lot of this intertwining valleys and hills, Maoc. Now she points out later on that it was providential that they met. In the area where they could have easily missed each other, a disaster would have been the result, and two, they were undercover. And the great mighty anointed of Yahweh, who was going to be king of the world, was about to get a lesson from a woman. And it was good for him that they were under the cover of the hill. And I can picture the scene as the two of them came head off. And David just breathing out, threatening his slaughter. And this woman calculating what she would say to him. Now look what she said. Verse 24. She fell on his feet and said unto him, Upon me, my ruler, 
upon me, let this iniquity be. First of all, she tries to alleviate David's anger by shifting the blame to herself. Let me take this, she said. Now in verse 25, the first thing she points out to David is that regard, she says, I pray thee, regard this man of Belial, let not my Lord, I pray thee, regard this man of Belial, worthlessness, even Nabal. For as his name is, so is he. Folly is his name, and folly is with him. She had a great respect for her husband. But you see, she wanted to point out to David, first and sister, is that there is no sense here of false loyalty. Loyalty is one thing. When loyalty is carried to extremes, it's a bad thing. She wanted to point out first of all to David, she knew the character of her husband, and was quite well aware of that character, and that because that she was his wife, she was not going to accede to the fact that folly should reign. No, sir. She said, my lord, the king. Or my lord, she said, I respect you best regard this man of the law. Forget him, deal with me. This is what she's saying. Now therefore, in verse 26, my lord, as Yahweh liveth, and as thy soul liveth, seeing Yahweh hath withholden thee from coming to shed blood, and from avenging thyself with thine own hand, now let thine enemies and they that seek evil be to my Lord be as Nabal. Look what she's saying. Look, she says to David, my husband's name is a fool, and I believe he's a fool. Make no mistake about that. I don't agree with it. But I want to tell you this. You're being stopped in your tracks by Yahweh. Yahweh's withholding you from two things. And I want to impress this upon you, David. Two things that you're going to do that you're going to sadly reject. One is you're going to shed innocent blood. And two, and this is the point she drove home again, you're going to save yourself. It's never been your politics, David. You're going to save yourself, as the Martin said. And it's never been your politics. And furthermore, brethren and sisters, she thought she wasn't concerned with, with Nabal. She'd got him right out of the question. She said, let's not regard him. And I'm talking about Nabal. What you're going to do to Nabal, David, you'll regret because you've never adopted this attitude against your real enemy. Because he said, there be they that seek evil to my Lord. Let them do as Nabal. Let God handle Nabal as you've been letting God handle Saul. Be consistent, David. See what she's getting at? Don't worry about Nabal. Think what you've been doing with Saul. Him and my husband are the same, David. But I know how you've acted towards him. Now, don't be a fool and be inconsistent with your practice. You'll regret it. Look at this woman. Now she says in verse 28, I pray thee, forgive the trespass of thine handmaid, for Yahweh will certainly, certainly make my Lord a sure house, because my Lord fighteth the battles of Yahweh, and evil hath not been found in me all thy days. And she was a woman, brethren and sisters, that brought to David's notice the establishment of his house before that term was ever used by Nathan the prophet. She used that term David's house long before Nathan ever promised him that God was building a sure house. That's not a bad sort of an insight into the promises of God, is it? And she said this, the reason you're going to get this, David, is because you've fought the battles of Yahweh 
and no evil has been found in you all your days. Why is he inconsistent? Yet she says, a man is with them to pursue them. And to seek thy soul, that the soul of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of life with Yahweh thy God. And the souls of thy enemies, then shall he fling out as out of the middle of a sling. And there is intelligence. What better calculated, brothers and sisters, to appease the wrath of a man that a woman should make a veiled inference to some of his victories? And David would have considered this, and she said, look, a man is risen to seek me. She's not worrying about Nabal. He's forgotten. He's an idiot. All she's worrying about is Saul and David and his attitude to Saul. Now, Martin, you note that. And she says to him, look, the issues are this, David, that your life is bound up in a bag of life. That your enemies, he will swing out of the sling as with a stone. And when David went to fight the lion, he had five stones in a shepherd's bag. And it was the grace of God, brethren and sisters, all through his life that had saved him. And that stone went straight into Goliath's forehead. And there was a, a, a very deaf allusion to the slaying of Goliath and the providence of God in keeping him in a shepherd's bag. She said, use your brain. Let God handle the situation. Remember Goliath. Remember the law. You never went out in anger, David. You went out in supreme confidence that Yahweh would avenge himself, not you. You weren't going to save yourself. Yahweh was going to save you. Now you be careful. Now look at verse 31. That wish shall be no grief unto thee, nor offence of heart unto my Lord. I that thou hast shed blood causeless, all that my Lord hath saved himself. But when Yahweh shall have brought well with my Lord, then remember thine handmaid. What a wonderful thing, brethren and sisters. He summed up the whole position and said to him, Now look, David, all I said to you is this. Nabal is a fool. Now, David, why should a fool entice you to be as foolish as him? Leave him alone. He's an idiot. Now, David, listen to me. You're not fighting Nabal, you're fighting Saul. And you've fought him on sound principles. And those are the principles that are going to take you into the kingdom and make you a sure house. Now those principles, David, have been this. That you have never shed innocent blood and you've never made an attempt to save yourself. Don't let a fool draw you into inconsistency. A man has risen up to pursue you, David, and you've been pursued by him. The issue's been clear to you, David. You've been hit in a shepherd's bag, and it's Yahweh that slings them out of the sling. Let him continue. But when you come to the throne, nobody can look back on this incident and say, there was an occasion when David lost trust in God and saved himself. And when you do come to the throne, David, remember me. She was a very intelligent woman. She was an extremely intelligent woman. And the very fact, brothers and sisters, that she should say, Lord, remember me, showed that she not only knew that David was going to come to the kingdom, but she had what God was pleased with in every son and daughter. She had faith. But without faith it is impossible to please God. For they that come to God must believe that he is, 
and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. And that woman was looking for a reward. She had a personal hope. And David acknowledged all that she said. He said, he said Look, Abigail, Yahweh has sent you. And he said, You've saved me from avenging myself with my own hand. You've saved me from fire. And so they parted, went their separate ways. She went back to Nabal, found him in a drunken feast, blind drunk, said, I won't talk to him tonight, I'll tell him in the morning. And in the morning, she told him all that she'd done, and he had a stroke. His heart died within him and became as a stone. And ten days later, he was dead. She was right, brethren and sisters. Kind of said she was dead right. <laughs> ten days later, she was right, and he was dead. Yahweh had handled him. And David had been delivered from a very grievous error that could have blotted his copybook. And I want you to, I'll repeat again for the sake of you all, that the chief concern that that woman had was not his vengeance upon Nathan, but that he should act out of character in his fight against Saul. And she was watching that fight with the closest intent, waiting for its ultimate outcome that she herself might join herself to David. That woman was extremely intelligent. And she was married to a man like that. A wonderful character. And the record says that David took her to wife. He sent a message unto her. And when you read the record, you can almost see her falling over herself to get to David. And she lived there and was in opulence and luxury. The man had many possessions. He had flocks and herds. He had all sorts of things. And she left that to go to David. And she went straight away. And where, where was she? In the hills of Judah down in the land of the Philistines, taken captive by the Amalekites. Abigail, the wife of David, and his children were taken with them. And she was in dire circumstances. But she came to the throne with him too. And was a wonderful woman in his world. A beautiful woman with whom David could have intelligent conversation. A rare characteristic. And David would have, I believe, great consolation in a woman like that. And there's an example for our, for our sisters to follow. Use their intelligence as God has given them and to use it for the good of others and to see that their brethren act consistently in the things of the truth. To give advice when necessary. Never to take the authority of the Lord's word. That's not their prerogative. But to give tender and sweet advice as this woman did. Save David from an holocaust, which he would have been victorious. No doubt about that. But which would have been better with the rest of his life. And then comes an incident which I want to finish with in verse 26. In chapter 26, I'm sorry, of the first of Samuel, when the Ziphites came to Saul to Gibeah again. Wonderful people, the Ziphites. And again they betrayed David. And we learned that David at that time was at the hill of Hakalah, which means the hill of hiding. And so Saul came down in verse 3 and pitched in the hill of Hakalah. And David sent spies out and understood that Saul was coming very deep. David's intelligence system was terrific. Now you see, at this time, that, David, that Saul came down into the territory of this, it's David this time that takes the battle of Saul. And you see, there's a wonderful, uh, wonderful thrill in this. You see how that David now takes the initiative in this area. An initiative, by the way, which he gave away later on. He couldn't understand this. But he, he sent out his spies, they watched Saul come down, and he knew all the nooks and crannies now, he could follow him intelligently, and down he came, and he settled out in the camp, and David knew where he was. So David saw the prey, 
were so light, and he saw the place where Abner the son of Ner lies. And Abner the son of Ner, brethren and sisters, is now brought into the record very prominently for a reason. So David goes down to the hill of Hakalah, and across this valley, this great space, as in verse 13, across the great space, there in the darkness was a camp of Saul. So David turns around, looks at two fellows, Ahimelech the Hittite, and Abishai, the brother of Joab, who wants to come down with me? Abishai got his words out first. He was a fast talker. And I could imagine they were, look, they were courageous men, make no mistake about this. They were men in those days. And Abishai said they would have fallen over his spear getting out of the front. I'll go, I'll go, I'll go. Be right, I'll go. Right. Abishai, brothers and sisters, father of generosity. He was very generous. Really generous. So he was he, he was a man in the second Samuel 23 that stood up 300 men on one occasion. Stood them all up. A whole lot of them in the field. 300. I'll go. Down they went. Really occasion this. David had a purpose in this. You see how David has taken the initiative now. And down they go. As I pointed out the other night, they stood over Saul. And they kicked him out because it was the custom in those days for the king always to sit in fear of his head. So in the middle of the night, anybody wanting to find the king would only have to find a sword standing up in the ground in every rock. So there was a spear stuck in his head. And there's Abishai and David standing over him, and all the men around him were asleep. Come on, David. Kill us again. What? You imagine, he'd have put him about six foot under. And so David, no, no, look, Abishai, I'm destroying you not. Pick up his spear. I want that water bottle. Come with me. Down over the valley, up the other side. Now David's got a purpose, doesn't he? Because David could see something going on in Saul's kingdom. Although he was isolated from, from the hills of Judah and from where Saul's kingdom was, David knew what was going on. And when there was a great space between them, and I want you to capture the scene, David calls out, Hey, up there!
Where's the king's spear, Abner? Search around in the dark for it. That looks like it's not there. I've got it, Abner. And he lay right alongside of me. And you can imagine, Abner, singing with rage, brother, with this. Because he'd been caught out. Why had he been caught out? Because now David wants to get it this time. Because he was the man that was staring up Saul. Because in verse 19, David says, Now therefore I pray thee, let my lord the king hear the words of his servant. If Yahweh has stirred thee up against me, let him accept an offering. But if they be the children of men, cursed be they before Yahweh. For they have driven me out this day from abiding in the inheritance of Yahweh, saying, Go serve other gods. And that's what David had against Abner, brethren and sisters, because he was the man that was bolstering up Saul in the vain hope that one day he would occupy Saul's position. He was Saul's uncle. He was related to him. He took major steps later on to gain that throne. And he was driving David out. And the thing that led him David's call was the fact that if Yahweh stirred Saul up, he wouldn't mind because he would be a guilty man. But what had David out was that men were feeding the hatred of Saul. And while what was happening, David was being driven further and further away from the inheritance of Yahweh. And he was in danger of going out of the prince. And in danger of going out of the prince for And men keeping out of the prince, like Abner. And this Abner, the son of Ner, father of Lot. Look what he was, brothers and sisters. A scheming, ambitious man. He was first of all captain of Saul's post. But in the scene of Second Samuel chapter 2, we learn a little, little bit about this hypocrite and hypocritic was. An ambitious hypocrite. In the second of Samuel, chapter 2. Even when Saul was slain upon the mountains of Gilbar. In the second of Samuel, chapter 2, and verse 8, we read, But after the son of Ner, captain of Saul's host, took East Bosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Manahayim. Manahayim. He brought him over to Manahayim, brethren and sisters. East Bosheth. Just a lump of jealousy. His name means a man of shame. And Abner brought him over the door, even when Saul had fallen, and the power of David was clinging into the throne. Abner was clinging tenaciously to the hope that he could be the king of Israel, the greatest man in the land, as David called him on that occasion in irony. The greatest Israelite of the league in Israel. And he was clinging tenaciously to the vain hope, and he got the huge boss here, son of Saul, as just a puppet sitting, stuck him on the throne, and stood behind him, goading him all the time. And he knew... He knew, brethren and sisters, for sure that Yahweh had promised over the kingdom. He knew that. And in the next chapter, the second of Daniel, he says in verse 9, or verse 6, first of all, And it came to pass while there was war between the house of Saul and the house of David, that Abner made himself strong to the house of Saul. He went and married one of Saul's concubines. One step towards the throne, because it was a custom in those days that if a man took the king's wife, this gave him a claim to the throne. So he took this step towards the throne. Ishbosheth told him in question. And I want you to notice the words of Abner Ishbosheth in verse 9. He said, So do God to Abner. And more also, except as the Lord has sworn to David, even so I do to him to translate the kingdom from the house of Saul and to set up the throne of David over Israel and over Judah from Dan even to Beersheba and as if to underline 
the power he exercised over his pocket. We read, and he could not answer Abner a word again because he feared him. But look at the words of Abner, brothers and sisters. Look at the foolish, stupid, idiotic words of Abner to his pocket. He said, listen, accusing me of having this woman. His pocket, I believe, was correct. I believe this feeling ambitious man was taking a step towards the throne. But he said to his pocket, who is it that you are? Now he said, listen, Yahweh has promised the kingdom to David. Remember, and not to emulate the characteristics of Adna, the father of life. 